to ask me questions about my book, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. So we talked for about 40 minutes. I included the entirety of our discussion in tonight's show. And seeing as we talked about the Boogeyman, I included a song from the band A Perfect Circle. The song is Pet. It seems very fitting for this interview. And to finish out tonight's show, I included the Antichrist songs Judith, also by A Perfect Circle, which has a tie-in to the New York events of 9-11. Thank you for listening.
Yeah, so yeah, uh, very, definitely unique until I started reading your uh, book. I, you know, I was one of those people who thought that they were completely innocent. I went to their, you know, uh, their premiere documentary screening uh, here in New York. I was in front of Damien Eccles. I, you know, I, I was, when I first saw them on, the first time I saw them was on Piers Morgan. Right. And, you know, I was like shocked. I was like, how could these people be in jail? So I was one of those people who believed. So you, you went to West, West of Memphis, is that right? I went to, yes, I went to West of Memphis, not Paradise Lost, West of Memphis. Um, so that was what, three years ago? That was about three years ago, yeah. And so, yeah, ever since then, I mean, I, I you know, haven't really caught up or like paid that much attention to it. But, you know, I always, it was always one of those weird, interesting cases that I knew, you know, a little bit about, but didn't want, didn't, hadn't gone really into it. And so now with this social history class, I was, you know, I was given a little flexibility and able to, you know, pick a topic and kind of look at it through like a social lens. Mm -hmm. And so I originally kind of was interested in looking at how, you know, considering that I thought that they were innocent, how maybe like socioeconomic status played into the, uh, can you, can you turn off your uh, bell? Is that yours? Yeah. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't know if you were hearing that. Let me turn that off. Uh, Thanks. Hold on. Thanks. How did you get into or go see West of Memphis? Um, well, it was after – here, let me just – let me really make sure this is off. Give me one second. All right, I'm going to quit it. Hopefully that works. Um well, after the Piers Morgan thing, I'd watch it with my dad, and you know he. And then, I think it was not. It was shortly thereafter that the the documentary came out, and so I was kind of like, and my dad knew that I had, I'd been interested and kind of fascinated by the story, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that's when he uh, he was like, hey, you know, let's go to the docu- uh, to the to the premiere. The the main guy's gonna be there, like you know. And I was like, yeah, sure. So that's how I got into it. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like the basic background info. Um, so, so I have, you know, I have some questions here. Some, you know, are based off of the excerpts that I read. Some might be like obvious, like, well, it's written in my book, but I haven't written, I haven't read the entire book. So forgive me. That's fine. Um, Go ahead. I'm comfortable answering any question you want. What, uh, what will this paper be reviewed only by your teacher or will it be reviewed by your class? It will be reviewed only by my teacher. Um, yeah. Uh, we don't. I, I might. I might share it. I, I. We might do like a. Sometimes at my school for our final kind of project, uh, it's it's you're in a little group of students and everyone reviews the other person's paper and then you go in with the teacher as part of your final grade and you guys all talk about each other's uh, projects and ask each other questions and ask each other like, you know, all, a variety of different things on everyone else's paper. So at most it would be a couple other kids reviewing my paper but it's mostly for my teacher but it is interesting that you look at this case within the context of social history because i think that this case if you kind of leaf through the chapter headings in my book i talk about the the kind of how this case has become a cause celeb case where so many celebrities are involved and also the potency and power of a public relations firm uh, and how that they can shape public awareness or, or perception of a case and how Damien Eccles actually went on. You use Piers Morgan, for example, but he went on the view. He went on all these other talk shows and you can look at those talk shows. If you go to William Ramsey investigates, because I kept an eye on that when he was on what the view with Janine Pirro and she's kind of asking him questions, but she doesn't know 
the case well enough to ask him the right questions. But that was one of the fascinating aspects of the cases is it's is how it played out in the public arena. Right. Oh, sorry. Let me uh, let me try to get rid of this. That's loud. It's loud in my ears. I mean, I can take yeah, my earphones off. It's loud in mine, but I, I, if I mute, if I mute this, the volume, then I can't hear you. Okay. So let me uh, let me get let me sign out. This. Okay. So I shouldn't be able to receive anything. Okay. All right. Hopefully it doesn't come up again. Sorry about that. No worries. Um. Yes, I think yeah. So that was yeah. I think definitely because that's also the, another way I saw it was you know with Johnny Depp getting behind him, and uh, yeah, I, I actually I saw that the interview on the View, and I do think the public perception. I mean. One of my questions here was kind of like, do you think that, and you and you referenced Paradise Lost a couple of times in what I read, um, do you think Paradise Lost was kind of like the main reason or became like the foundation for the case to be made that the West Memphis Three were innocent? Yes, was, yes. I would say that they provided most of the information to the public that came across as them being innocent. If you break down the three Paradise Lost documentaries, the initial one was the most objective, in my opinion. They they had some sequences in there, particularly the last sequence where Damien Eccles calls himself the, the West Memphis Boogeyman. They had sequences that looked kind of semi-objective, but they left it. Once you read the court cases, which are available, or the court records, which are available on Callahan's, you can see how much was left out, uh, you know, how much salient, important information was left out of all three documentaries. But then the second documentary, they lay the blame on one stepfather, Byers, and right. even, and even even Eccles and the three general the three people who were involved were Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. But Eccles and Baldwin lay the blame a hundred percent, and they say this a hundred percent on Byers. And then the third one it switches to uh, Terry Hobbs, the other stepfather who supposedly wasn't investigated. And then if you even go farther than that, the movie that you saw, West of Memphis, they lay out all the stuff, and and they actually got two guys who were I think in jail. Uh, who had you know these statements of double hearsay that there was some kind of Terry Hobbs family secret, but that was even sketchier. And those are laughable evidentiary yeah. uh, statements to actually put in court. You just they're just not even admissible in, in any court in any place in the state of the United in the United States. So um, I do think going back to your question that those three documentaries really set the stage for innocence, and that's how it ste- it kind of steamrolled. There was also people involved in the second documentary. Uh, there were three activists who were trying to prove the innocence of Damien Eccles. <coughs> Excuse me, Damien Eccles, and they uh, they were also heavily involved in, in skewing public position. And that's how. And then once that kind of started, it snowballed. And then these uh, public figures, so many celebrities, came behind Damien Eccles that that was really kind of what sealed the public importance. And once the money was raised, which has never really been determined how much money was raised, but it's been guesstimated at between 10 and 20 million dollars that's when the additional excellent lawyers came involved right a pr firm out of new york uh lonnie sorry s-o-u-r-y an excellent you know a great pr guy very skilled uh, public relations person so all these things came out from that initial you know the initial three documentaries yeah and i mean i just think it's interesting you know like this is kind of this was kind of like a feel-good story in a sense for, you know, people who did believe that they were innocent. But for you, like, while you were, I mean, one, like, how did you first get interested in this case? And why did you then end up, you know, well, looking into the facts and looking into the, maybe the real facts, the ones that weren't coming out in these documentaries, and then feel compelled to kind of 
put it together and write a book about it? That's an excellent question. I was a Alistair Crowley researcher. Alistair Crowley was this right, occultist who came out of England. He was born in 1875, died in 1947, but he was very influential. So I'd been researching. I wrote a, a biography about him called <laughs> The Prophet of Evil, and that was my first book. And so as I was actually researching my second book, which is Children of the Beast, which is all the people Crowley influenced, I came across a video online of a prosecutor talking to Damien Eccles on the stand, and they were talking about Aleister Crowley. So that really made me sit up in my chair. Like, I had no idea. I had watched the initial Paradise Lost documentary sometime in the mid to late 90s, and I hadn't really followed the case. And I remembered that they got out of jail in August of 2011. So this was after 2011 that I got interested in the case. But I remember they got out, and I just thought, okay, there must have been something wrong with the case. I really didn't know how and under what circumstances they were released. But once I realized that Aleister Crowley was involved in this case, or there was a mention of Crowley, and they were talking to Eccles because he had made a drawing board of like a secret alphabet that named his name, uh, Jason Baldwin, and Aleister Crowley on a piece of paper. And the prosecutor was asking him questions on the stand during his trial. And so that really was like, okay, what's the story with this case? Now, I had... I had a very <clears throat> vague notion that they were innocent. So I just assumed they were innocent. But then I realized that I could go back and look at all the court records. And so uh, they were all available at a site named Callahan. So I just started reading through and I was astonished at how much um, the, the police had, how much information the police had garnered about these guys before their trial and how much information they had gotten about the occult and how Damien Eccles was involved in the occult. The occult. And so that really kind of piqued my interest. And I took a position once I wrote my book, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. You know, I, I, I was like pretty much alone saying the occult was involved in this. There's some kind of attachment to Crowley. Alistair Crowley himself said that the perfect sacrifice is like a young eight-year-old boy. And these three victims were all eight-year-old boys. And there's elements of these crimes that fit in a, a pattern of an occult ritual. Not really something formalized, but there was a full moon. There's all kinds of things involved, but that's really how I got started looking into the West Memphis Three was, was really about uh, the, that video of mentioning Aleister Crowley. And did you ever, uh, did you ever face any kind of backlash from the media or from any of the members from the West Memphis Three for your book? Yes. So I actually had my book was was uh, taken off of Amazon. There was a complaint made. And I was threatened with a lawsuit. I can send you the, the email that shows that they threatened to law sue me. It was through another guy who was uh, known to be hanging out with Eccles at the time. His name was, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he was a friend of Eccles who, who was kind of like an intermediary, saying that I had used in my original version of the documentary, I had used some of Damien Eccles' artwork, and they claimed that that was a copyright violation. Um, oh. I was using it, I believed, in a fair use context, which was allowable. Anyway, I took that out. I actually battled. There was a lot of back and forth between me and this guy who was an intermediary for Damien Eccles and uh, Amazon. But eventually, Amazon took my side, and my book has been up ever since we kind of went through that argument. But I also had, um, when my book was up on Amazon, I had a significant group of people go on to Amazon and give me one-star reviews. And say huh. that it was a disgrace. And if you look at the book, you know that I reference all of these court documents. There's about 400 right. or 500 
references in there indexed about all these court cases. But they said that I was making stuff up, that it was baloney. I also had some strange occurrences happen, but um, I definitely got some pushback. I mean, people called me all kinds of names and terminology, and on social media, my position was um, in a minority, in a minority of a minority, really, because there were people who believe that are out there. They're they're colloquially known as the nons and, you know, the uh, people who think he did it. I forgot the other name. Anyway, but they, even they think, a lot of people who believe that Eccles was guilty this, uh, don't view the occult as an important motivator. But I think the post-release um, events show that Damien Eccles is a very serious practitioner and observer of occult ideas. And it, was there ever kind of a doubt throughout the whole book process, throughout the entire your time researching, was there ever a doubt in your mind that they could actually be innocent? The the pro the thing that weighed everything against, and from a legal perspective, that that in this guilt is a legal term, that they are right. they're objectively guilty. Once they signed the agreements to get out of jail in August 2011, once they agreed to an Alford plea with their attorneys, which were like excellent attorneys. They're guilty as a matter of law, and they're still guilty. They're still under probation until 2021. So right. that is really, and the real question for me is, is it was the guilt determinant? So they're actually an interesting figures because they were found guilty twice. They were, all three were found guilty in, in 1994, and then signed and said they were guilty in 2011. That doesn't right. happen very often in criminal cases. It's actually a rarity. But uh, So the real question for me is, are these guilty Please, and are the guilty situations, are they correct? And in my opinion, definitely correct, looking at all the evidence. But there was never a doubt in your mind that <coughs> no one else could have possibly committed these murders. Well, no, that's a good question, because I did look at all of these other red herrings, and I looked and saw where they were coming from. I looked at the buyers. I looked at Hobbs. I looked at what's known as the Bojangles guy, a guy who was found bloody and in a uh, restaurant the night of the murders that was fairly close to the murders. I looked at all other potentials. I looked at all the stories. And even those stories, they came up flat because they were never really tested in court. They, the, new, the, the, most, the most recent claim that Terry Hobbs did it is based upon so-called evidence that was found by the defense but never brought into the court of law and actually ascertained whether it is. There's supposedly a hair that is, it fits Terry Hobbs with... You know, a 98.5% accuracy that it's consistent with his DNA, which doesn't prove anything. It doesn't mean he was there. And it was also tested through the defense. So all these things have to be tried in court, including all these hearsay statements and stuff like that. So looking at that, if, the, if, if Damien Eccles and his excellent, I mean, he was able with the money to get the best appellate attorney probably reared in, uh, in the country who had worked on Barry Bonds and all these other high-profile figures... If he had such devastating evidence showing that he wasn't guilty, they should have brought it into court immediately and put it in there and, and proven not only to the court but to the world that this evidence is outstanding, you know, is irrefutable, right? Right. That, that, that didn't happen. That did not happen. So, and that's an interesting thing because once they got released, there was a statement by, I think, Eccles before, prior to their release in August of 2011, that it was easier for him to get out of court and fight the charges while he was out of court 
and nothing has really happened from those three guys since they've been out. They've just lived under probation, and there's no real attempt to find the so-called other perps. And I think hmm. that's important. I think that's okay. important to know. And I guess from like a social aspect, do you think we should kind of fear these people that have like satanic or goth-like tendencies or appearances or, you know, proven ideologies? Or can someone be satanic and completely harmless and peaceful? That's a great question. That's an excellent question. I think that you can definitely kind of uh, sift through these different personalities, whether somebody's a goth, whether somebody's a Satanist. What's, what we know for a fact, and this is written in the OTO, which was Crowley's Secret Society, the Ordo Templi Orientis, that Damien Eccles was a member of the Arkansas or Ordo Templi Orientis, written in their own documents, and that he had enough occult books to actually have the OTO chapter in Arkansas name their library the Damien Eccles Library. And they wow. just found, and this is recently, um, you can listen to this interview on, on Ed Opperman, there was a guy who bought Damien Eccles and his wife Lori, he bought their storage lockers. Uh, there were two storage lockers that they owned in Arkansas and, and failed to pay, and somebody bought them and went through, and there's all of, there's about 20, he had said he had about 1,200 to 2,000 books that were occult-related from Damien Eccles. So, um, you have to parse through these individuals. We know the OTO and Crowley himself was a very sinister figure who's involved in sacrifice, blood rituals and things like that. So there's definitely a, an important distinct distinction between a goth and a, and a practicing Satanist. We know, and Damien Eccles has stated that he's licked blood, right? And he's right. stated all of these other strange, he's admitted to all these other strange practices. If you look through the exhibit 500, which was Damien Eccles' psych records from three different um, hospitals, you can see a pattern of, and this is, this is determined by um, a, a wide variety of, and there's actually another psychiatrist, a guy by the name of George Woods, who wrote an affidavit in 2000. You can see that from 1993, 1994, there were three hospitals he talked about Eccles, and then another guy in 2000 that he was, he had very strange ideation. So a run-of-the-mill Satanist, I think you, you have to look at it, at least in my opinion, as a case-by-case basis. But Damien Eccles has a very peculiar record. And uh, I've actually, there's actually was a movie that was filmed, I believe, in New York. It was called IRL. It was an independent film. And in it, Damien Eccles is handling a shotgun, which is actually a violation of his probation. But he's sitting with another known high occultist, a guy by the name of Genesis P. Orridge. And... Uh, just that, you know, you, you can't make a a judgment just by having two people together. But the fact they're in a movie together, and I know Genesis P. Orge's background and what he was involved in, Children of Psychic or Temple of Psychic Youth and his books, <coughs> that it's remarkable um, that, that Damien Eccles would actually allow himself to be filmed in a movie with that guy. So I think that you have to look and see what this individual uh, really is up to. And, you know, to, uh, I take I take the like there's Eccles wrote in his and this is included in Exhibit 500, he wrote about, you know, being the right hand side of Satan blowing up an ammunition dump, and that's where I got the title Abomination was something that Damien Eccles wrote. Damien Eccles wrote. Oh. Um, so I think it's important. I mean, getting to your question, you got to look at each individual, each person individually. Okay. That's what I would and that would be my argument. And kind of, I guess, from an even broader perspective, 
how would you kind of sum up the role of Satanism or even just religion or beliefs kind of in the legal system as a whole? Well, that's a great question. I mean, what, what's, what's somebody, does somebody ideology indicate their propensity for committing individual crimes, right? Certain types of crimes. Um, when I first started writing about this book, about this topic, I was told there's no such thing as occult crimes, which is why I included occult-related or motivated crimes as a section in Abomination. And so some people have this ideology of violence, lust for blood, whether it's the Rippers out of Chicago or you know some of these other types, type of motivated people, the vampire, the vampire killers of Kentucky. These guys were involved in all kinds of strange stuff, rich blood drinking, um, violence to the human body. And so, you know, you could see that these things led up to a, a bigger crime, you know. And uh, so it's, it's tough to say somebody's ideology. Would, is, if, does, does it, if somebody's in the mob, let's say they're known members of the mafia, does that mean they have a higher propensity to commit a crime? Yeah. You know? Those yeah. are good questions. But here's the, here's the quote that this, this is from Damien Eccles' own writing. I can see physical changes happening in my body. I can tell it's getting ready. The abominations or abominations have already begun to be spit forth from the earth. I have seen some of them. I will become one soon. I will be the king of freaks. I see a perfect ex explosion, God's ammunition dump going up in the flames of righteousness, Satan storming heaven, his artillery captain, a fiercely grinning fool with red flayed cheeks, Damien by name, never to be Michael Hutchison again. The end is here. Kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> that's that's in his own writing. So that's actually from the court cases. And that's how I got the title of the book. Okay. Wait, that, I think that's a, Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. But I think that's a good question. What what is somebody's ideology as a propensity to commit a crime, you know? Also, somebody, I'll for me, it's like, are these people, and I'm kind of thinking of this right now, it's just like, are these people, do we have a place for these people in society? Because even though they may have, you know, stranger kind of views, or are these people just mentally ill? It's, I think it's a valid question. I think it's a very valid question. I, think, I don't know. What, what would you I say mean, about if that? If you look at Damien Eccles' uh, medical history, yeah, uh, there, there's serious problems. He was, he was, he was actually... Um, prescribed impramine or some type of psychiatric drug and he was he was a i think the ssa the social security administration had given him a full social security disability for his his condition prior to the deaths so they an objective third party gave him that designation well, and um this is kind of more like a a, ran, a random kind of question okay. But what would you, if you, if you were in a room with the West Memphis Three, what would you say to them? Why did you do it? No. Why'd you kill them? Why'd you kill them? I mean, the the thing is, is that they're they're they've all admitted to doing, committing the crimes, in one place or another. Whether it was Damien Eccles at a softball game, or the most I think most important confessions, which isn't the the original, Jesse Miss Kelly confession that took place. I believe it was on June 3rd, 1993, but it was the post-conviction confessions that are recorded by Jesse Miskelly with his hand on a Bible, his attorney saying don't do it, and him saying I want something done about it and saying that and implicating himself 
Damien Eccles, and Jason Baldwin in the murders. And do you think that, you know, there's there's been a lot made that, I mean, I know you go through with kind of like the myths about the case that Miss Kelly didn't actually have the IQ that was that low. Yeah. Um, do you think kind of uh, the pressure from the police that's been talked about a lot in all these documentaries, do you think that's valid? Do you think that they really pressed him as much as they kind of say that they do? Let's just hypothetically state that if Jesse, if Jesse's original confession was flawed or if there was something wrong with it, why did he confess post-conviction? Like he had already been stamped, you're going to jail. Why did he confess after that? How did they, how did, how did they, you know, force him to confess on his car out of the jail or out of the court? He confessed to the two cops and then he did it twice. He actually once known as the Bible confession and then the confession against the advice of the attorney, both recorded. And I included those as, as appendixes to, or appendices to my book so people can read them that, you know, there's all kinds of arguments. And actually, in any situation, if you're, if I was a defense attorney and my um, client had confessed, I would always attack that confession in court. I would always question the validity of the confession. That's commonplace. It would actually be malpractice if you didn't. So right. you're always going to come up with some reason. And there are always are standards that you can nullify confession, whether you're under the age of 18, whether you're... Um, you know, under the, the prop, whether you can actually consent if you're not, if you don't have a high enough IQ, can you state that? So Jesse's IQ always has been deflating so it can get under the 70 level. Right. And right. so that's, that's, a that's, you know, he's been tested at 88. I mean, obviously not the brightest guy in the world, but these are all very standard kind of legal things, you know, challenge the confession. Okay. Let's say that confession isn't good. Why is he doing, why did he have a post conviction confession? doesn't make sense. And my, and I guess kind of like one of my final questions for you is kind of, I mean, it's definitely a very interesting case, but why, you know, it kind of, I, I asked a similar question earlier, but why did you feel like you had to write this book? Like, did you, I mean, like now do you, do you regret it? Like, I know. No, I don't of- regret writing the book. My, the main impetus for me to write the book is because I believed at that time that I was correcting an injustice that had been served upon the public, which was that these guys were innocent, that they were wearing black and walking down the street and the, and the police railroaded them. And so that was why I wrote it, so that you could have a decent-sized book with all the case records that were salient to as to why these guys were the properly charged and convicted perpetrators of the crime. And why? Because, I mean, Because at that time, that was a very... You know, that was a minority of a minority position. Right. And also, I guess, something I just thought of right now is, I mean, you know, Damien Eccles has his whole, like, you know, he has his own thing with the whole Satan and, and all. But I guess, and he's definitely the primary character in this whole thing. But as for Baldwin and Miss Kelly, what do you think, I mean, was there any, any was there ever any evidence that, you know, they had satanic thoughts or why 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 were they implicated in it were they just like accomplices i mean they still you know carried out you know if it's true carried out uh, a, a horrific crime so like why why them it's a great question you know there, it seems like when you're looking at what the police were doing the research it looks like there was groups of kids with a lot of free time getting into all kinds of trouble and jesse miss kelly talked about stonehenge people being met there there's there's this uh, 
talk about all kinds of uh, sexual assaults taking place. Damien Eccles had already been under probation because he was involved with another girl. So these guys were all kind of getting into trouble. Jesse Miskelly was known as uh, somebody who was a brawler, a fighter. And the Jamie, Damien, according to what the evidence shows, is that, I mean, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin both had evil tattooed on the knuckles of their hand, right? And huh. Damien Eccles wrote 666 on his shoe. But they're spending a lot of time together, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin particularly. And at some point, Jesse Miskelly gets touch, you know, is it gets involved with them at the wrong time in the wrong place, I guess, in on June, you know, on the on May fifth, nineteen ninety three, and things go wrong. Whether it was a design case, I mean, there's also test, there's also statements that are in the court documents that show that Damien Eccles was walking around with a black briefcase with photographs of people taking pictures and doing strange stuff. So whether the kids were targeted or not, I have no idea. <clears throat> but there's, you know, there might have been a lot that made it may have been, as Jesse stated, like spontaneous crime, but it may have had a uh, malice of forethought component to it. Not sure. And how do you think? I mean, I was actually just taking a look the other day at uh, Damien Eccles's website, I and mean, even his artwork. I don't know if you've seen it; is very like witchcraft looking. Right. Um, well, that's an interesting thing because he actually requested the Encyclopedia of Witchcraft when he was in jail. He wanted to read that, so um, he definitely has the kind of a wide-ranging interest in occult subjects. But he also, I mean, listening to him is interesting as well because, you know, he, I mean, he's quite well spoken. You yeah, know, yeah, and so. people, and people. I mean, I saw him. You know, I was ten feet away from him, and, I mean, you definitely get a very weird vibe from him, but. He's very, uh, I would not, he's not a stupid person. I don't think he is. I don't think he is. And so, I don't know, what do you, do you think he'll ever, like, I mean, definitely won't come forth, I assume, but, like, what do you think a person like that, what do, what do Satanists nowadays do with themselves, I guess? Well, that's a great question. Um, He, according to himself, he is, he's changing his body, you know, he's putting these tattoos on himself that are um, consistent with John Dee's kind of uh, magical experiments. Have you seen the, the, black, uh, the black sun tattoo that's on his back? I have not. Okay, I'm going to send that to you right here. But he okay. still seems to be involved in promoting and you know, getting in touch with people. He's traveling around the country right now giving magical classes. Do you see that picture? It's coming through right now. So I do think he's still involved in, um, like he he gave a talk in Houston, I think it was at South by Southwest or something like that. I'll send you this picture too. Okay. See if those come through. But uh, so he's, yeah. he, he and he advocates. I think he's doing a podcast right now with two other guys that he's talking. He, the title of it is Magic Revolution, Magic with a K, right? So it distinguishes. It's right. kind of like Crowley's magic. K is the eleventh letter in the alphabet. It's like the eleventh the letter in the in the alphabet is the, um, you know, it's the number of magic. It comes together five and six. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so I think that he's still, um, I think that he's still promoting or involved in the promotion of, uh, you know, his magical ideas. And now he was asked on the stand, by the way, he was asked. You know, what do you know about magic? And I think his response was, I know everything about magic, just to paraphrase it. <laughs> well, and uh, I mean, I'm sure, I, I think there's there might have been a section, I'm not sure. But are there a lot of 
you know, I mean, definitely not similar, but there are a lot of cases with, you know, well, similar cases, really, <laughs> to this one, where, you know, you have satanic uh, influence and kind of, like, brutal murders of children or people in general. Uh, they actually just had one, one that took place in Argentina. Uh, they just arrested a couple of people, but it involved a young boy who was abducted and murdered, and uh, he was 11 years old. And uh, he was dismembered, dismembered in a satanic ritual. Okay. Um, so it was in, uh, the name of the child was Mario Augustin Salto. Okay. You can read about that. But yeah, and so these things are rare. I don't think they're commonplace at all. But right. I do think that, you know, these, uh, there, there's, you know, definitely situations where people are killed for occult reasons, whether you want to go to Matamoros, whether you want to talk about some of the earlier names I talked about, the Ripper crew, or some of these old, you know, some of these Satanists are very, you know, they're serious about uh, hurting people. And would, would you deem every Satanist... Like I said, it's it's a case by case basis. Yeah. I don't want I don't operate in generalities, but right, you know, right. I, I Damien Eccles. I think if you watch the end of West of Memphis, he states or he says in the beginning, "I want to be the greatest magician that ever lived." You remember that? Huh. Do you remember that statement? I saw it a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so I mean, I think he has those, those ambitions, and that's why he went to uh, Salem, Massachusetts, because that's where he was more comfortable with witches. Do you see that tattoo, that back tattoo? Yeah, wait, I, hold on. I'm afraid. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's part of it. And so if you scroll up the second from the top, you can see this. He's standing in what's known as the witch's alphabet, also known as the Theban alphabet. And uh, those are sigils in the background. So that's him giving a talk in Houston. So he's still moving around. He's still kind of. uh, So I guess according to you, it's really kind of like. They, he and, you know, his support cast behind him kind of used his goth-like appearance and said, look, we've been wrongly convicted just because I look this way. And then finally when he's out, he's kind of embracing it and saying, look, like we can all kind of do these rituals and it doesn't mean we're violent, even though... You know, well, it's interesting to... because people who watch or, or observe what Eccles is up to have that distinction. It's like, okay, just because you're into the occult doesn't mean that you have a propensity for violence, that you'll harm someone right. or you'll hurt, hurt kids, which I generally agree, agree with. However, if you get into some of the darker rituals, even Crowley wrote, um, and some of these other, there's involved in uh, ritual drowning, tying and drowning. Like literal, right. and that's what happened to the kids. They were tied and drowned. They weren't beaten to death. One of them died from, uh, you know, a violent beating, but the other two were drowned, according to Peretti's statement, who was the uh, forensic investigator. And I'm just, I'm just gonna kind of wrap it up here. I'm kind of, I was, just, I, I've been thinking this whole time, kind of, it's more personal question. How did you even? I know uh, Crowley was kind of the first person you were researching, but how did you even get into? researching him and kind of this subject matter as a whole? Uh, I was a 9-11 researcher. I was actually just an individual researcher. I was probably, even before the turn of the millennium, 2001, always investigating other uh, avenues of of information regarding any subject, whether it was false flag terror, you know, false history, 
hidden history. So I was always involved in that. I was a 9-11 researcher. I was interested in the numerology of 9-11, which led back to Crowley, which gave me, a, and I had a very good understanding of Crowley, and it led Crowley to, not, to this subject, the West Memphis Three. And then, you know, kind of, I've just kind of followed these investigations. And then I <clears throat> um, wrote a book, Children of the Beast, about all the people Crowley influenced. So I think the 20th century was influenced more by Crowley than people uh, recognize. And then I just finished a documentary called The Smiley Face Killers. He was uh, torturing, abducting, torturing, and murdering young college-age kids in the U.S. I would suggest somebody your age and your friends that watch right. that on Vimeo. I'll send you the link right now, but uh, I'll give you a free pass. You can take a look at it, but it's very important. Somebody your age, if you go off to college, right? Uh, I would watch this because there's probably about two, 200 men who have been abducted and murdered, and the, the police really haven't keyed into what's going on, but uh, I think my video explains everything. Well, look, thank you for your time. This was very interesting. Uh, kind of messes up my entire essay, though, because I was always kind of writing about how I thought that they were innocent because I was one of those people who believed it, but I think I'll have to change it now. <laughs> well, I would say that the, the you could read my book, but you can also go back to the case files. And the things that they can't explain is why haven't they arrested somebody else for the, for the crime? Why right. did Jesse confess after he got convicted when there was no interest for him, there was no force? And if you listen to that video with his attorney, he's saying, I want to confess. I don't care. You know, right. I, the, the attorney saying this is against your interest. I don't care. So why mm. is that? And why did all these guys state it? Whether it was Baldwin in jail, Damian Eccles at the softball meeting, or Jesse Miss Kelly, why did they all um, admit or confess to the crime? And then why is the occult a common theme from before the crime to right now? Those are all, I think, questions that um, you know should be answered. And I'm actually that, curious. Have you ever? After this book, have you ever felt kind of threatened in any way? Oh, that's a great question. Um, how would I answer that? I, answer. Uh, I would say this line of work is dangerous, dangerous because I do think that there's a lot. If you look at Damien Eccles' friends and all these people he's associating with. Um, yeah, probably some scary people. It's a definite cat. These are scary cast characters. Just look into, look into if Genesis P. Origin, his past. Um, you know, those are, they're dangerous people. The people, mm. the Genesis P origin is a dangerous person. But you've never been like, I mean, apart from <laughs> that, that they sent you with the threatening to sue you, you've never been kind of contacted or had any other interactions with these people. No, no comment. No comment. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, it was a pleasure. And I'll uh, I'll keep you posted if you want to read my paper. I'd then love I'll... to read it. Yeah, I'd love to read it. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. Felix, good night. Take a look at the Smiley Face Killers documentary. Look at the trailer. And I'll send – I have your email, so I'll send you the passcode. You can watch it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Felix, have a good night. Have a good night. You too.